So it's Mother's Day. And uh, last year, I got a really interesting question from someone. I love the questions that, that I get from people. Um, some of them just make me think so deeply and, and really go through things that I thought I knew. And this question was from a woman who said, you know, I know that God loves me, but does he like me? I want you to just think about that question for a second. I know that God loves me, but does he like me? You know, that's, that's really profound when you think about it. Because like implies affection, doesn't it? It implies genuine delight. It, it implies pleasure, a desire to be with the person, to be there. It, it, it evokes a kind of playful attention. It's all of those things in the word like that we don't necessarily get from the word love. Now, we're commanded to love, right? We're commanded even to love the enemy. Now, the enemy is not just someone who's maliciously against us, but just someone that we don't like. And yet we're commanded to love that person. So we know that there's a difference. We can love without liking. And even beyond that, we can't be commanded to like anything. What you like is really not under your control. Have you thought about that? You don't have control over what you don't like. (laughs) I saw this other sign that said, I want to grow my own food, but I can't find bacon seeds. (laughs) I like bacon. I don't like broccoli much. I don't know. I just came out of the chute that way. I don't know why I don't like broccoli. It's too green or something. I'm not sure. But I don't have any control over that. I just don't like it. Now, I can make myself eat it. And if Marion were to make broccoli, it would be the loving thing to do to eat it, right? But I don't have to like it. And that's the thing. We don't have control over this stuff. And so it's a real question. God loves us, yes. But does he like us? And that's why it's so precious to find out if God likes us because it can't be coerced in any way. It can't be bought. There is no control. Why would we doubt, since we know so deeply that God loves us? Well, maybe there's a question in your minds about that too. But even if you do, why would we doubt that he likes us? I guess, first of all, who knows better how unlikable we are than ourselves, right? We know all the dirty little dark secrets, and we know that we're not that likable a lot of the time. All right? But there's another reason, I think. We, as a church, for 2,000 years, and really as a Judeo-Christian um, you know, tradition, have looked at God as Father, which implies to us to look at God as masculine, to look at God as male. Now, those two things don't necessarily connect in the Hebrew, but especially for us as Western Christians, God is masculine, God is male, God is Father, which means that love is understood as justice, primarily. God, Father. There's a connection to our biological fathers or the, the, the men who raised us, the ones who are mostly in charge of the discipline, not always, but the ones that were holding us to standards, the ones that were tougher in terms of the relationship than mom certainly was. All those things are deeply and psychologically rooted in us, that God is this just father, that love looks like justice. The question is, is this the correct focus What about mom? What about God as mom? Is there a mother God in heaven along with our father in heaven? 
And I know that probably sounds really strange to some of you to talk about Mother God or our Mother in Heaven. But maybe Scripture can come and help us out a little bit here to get somewhat balanced. The Hebrew concepts, their worldview, how they looked at God, how they looked at relationships, are fortunately encoded in their language. They have a language very different than English. It's often called a root and pattern system. And it's, it's the idea, well, let me go back a little bit before I talk about that, because the alphabet was the pure genius of, of human development. Before there was an alphabet, the, old, the oldest script that we have, that the Hebrew was written into, were called pictographs. They were actually pictures of the things that they wanted you know, just objects or concepts, just like Egyptian hieroglyphics. You had pictures of everything. So there's a picture of an ox, and there was a picture of a house, and there's pictures of sunsets and different things that they needed to represent in their language. Here's the problem with pictographs and, and hieroglyphics. You need hundreds, if not thousands, of symbols to get across the concepts that you want to get across, right? So somewhere along the line, someone had the absolute, you know, brain leap, the, the apostrophe, the epiphany, that uh, we can only make so many sounds with our throat and our mouths, maybe 20 to 30. That's about it. And that's what we make our spoken speech out of, is just those few sounds. How about we represent those by marks instead of the actual representation of the thing itself. Now we can have an alphabet that's 20 to 30 characters instead of hundreds or even thousands. That was when everything started to change in terms of written language. And so the earliest, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, the earliest letters were stylized forms of those early pictographs. And so if you think about it, the A, the Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, was an ox's head. Because to a Hebrew, the ox, as the largest domestic animal that they were aware of, was the symbol of something that was first. It was strongest. It was greatest. And so that was their first letter. If you think about a stylized picture of an ox's head, right? you've got the triangular head and you've got the two horns. Somewhere along the way, just in the archaeological record, and no one really knows why, all the letters turned... 180 degrees, basically got inverted. So now think about the letter A. Ox's head, letter A. It is still hearkening back to that Phoenician Semitic alphabet that we all have had descended to us through the Romans. And so here's this letter. A B, uh, a bet in, in Hebrew, was a picture of one of their tents that had two compartments, one for the men and one for the women, with a curtain down the middle. And so if you think of the letter B, it is that shape, the floor plan of one of their houses, and so on and so forth. The 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet each had a name and each had its own meaning. And so the language was formed by putting two of those letters together to create what was called a parent root which had its own meaning. And then you add a third letter that was called the child root that had a meaning that was related to the meaning of the parent root. And then from that you formed words. But vertically, from the meaning of the letters to the roots and to the words, there is a meaning that is consistent. It is just changing and getting more and more conceptual, but it's related in meaning. This really helps us to start to get an idea of what the Hebrews looked at as they looked at their world. What did these words mean to them? So when we start to string these together, the oldest words are just two-letter parent roots. So the word for God, for instance, is El, or Al, depending. An Aleph can be represented by an A or an E in our alphabet. 
And so you have the Aleph, which means the strongest or the greatest, and then you have the Lamed, which was the staff of the shepherd, our letter L, which was the leader. And so the idea of a strong leader was their God, Al or El, and so on and so forth. When you get to father, the name for father is Ab, Aleph Beit, and it literally means a strong house. The father was seen as the pole that supports the tent that creates the space for the family in which to live. It was all about being the provider, being the, the tribal leader, being the, the one who executes the, the discipline and, and commands the army of all the sons and so on and so forth. But the strong house, he was the center of that. When you get to mother, the name is M. It's Aleph Mem, our letter M. And mem is the word for water. And if you think about it, even our M is a representation of the ripples across the surface of the water. So literally, mother means strong water. Okay, wait a minute. Strong water. Strong house was easy to understand. What's strong water? As they would tan their hides of their, of their sheep and, and their goats, they would boil them in big vats. And what would come up would be this milky white residue that they would skim off, and they would use it literally as glue, as an adhesive. So the idea of mother as strong water was that she was the glue that holds the household together. The father is the support for the house, and the mother is the glue that holds it all together. Beautiful, if you start to think about the way that they looked at the relationships in their own household. Strong house, strong water. Now, we think very dualistically in the West. We think either or. You know, God is either masculine or he's feminine. He's either father or he's mother, but he can't be both at the same time. Hebrews think much more unitively, or at least in a continuum. When we think of good and bad, good and evil, we think of diametrically opposed, cosmically opposed forces that are constantly in battle. But for a Hebrew, good, taba, means ripe, because the best thing in an agrarian society, subsistence society, is something that was ripe, something that could nourish you the fruit of the field. And Bisha, evil, was unripe, not ready, not ready for prime time, immature, not able to do what it's supposed to do and designed to do. Same thing with light and dark, Nura and Hosheka. Those words were not literally opposed to each other like good and evil are, but they were seen as a continuum between light and dark, a continuum between immature and maturity. Day and night, the same way. Day, Yama, was a time for straight lines and for moving forward and accomplishing things. And then Layla, night, was a time for introspection, for consolidation, for rest and introspection. And they were seen as complementary and necessary, just a continuum along. Male and female is the same way. Intuitive and cognitive, the same way. All these things are continuums rather than hard left and right. And it's the same thing with mother and father, doing and being, right? Martha and Mary in, in the New Testament. It's about father being the center of accomplishment, making things happen, executing things, establishing and, and holding on to the law, standards, and mother is about relationship, holding everything together, about compassion and mercy. And those things are not seen as opposites, but they're seen as absolute necessary complements, two sides of the same coin that kept oscillating back and forth. And God was understood this way, not either or, but both and, necessary and complementary. 
Father and mother are like this in the Hebrew thought. So what about God? What about God? Yes, he was understood as Ab, as father. Avun, which means father of everything, father of all creation. But does that mean he's male? Is there female aspects or neither or both? In the primary prayer of Israel, the Shema is what it's called. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Had. You'll find it in Deuteronomy 6. It means, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God is one. This idea of Echad, oneness, but not a singular oneness, but what we would call a unity, multiple things functioning as one. This is the way they understood father and mother functioning. Two, strong house, strong water, but functioning as one entity, one necessary and complementary entity. It's the perfect marriage, the strong house and the strong water, holding the family together and supporting it at the same time. So, our mother in heaven, mother God, is that legitimate to say? Can we say that in any way? Let's take a look at Proverbs. And this would be uh, Proverbs 1, actually, right at the beginning of the book, starting at verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Chokhmah, wisdom, personified as a female, personified as a woman. This is common throughout all of Hebrew literature, all of Hebrew writing, including the canonical scriptures. The word ruach, which means spirit, ruha in Aramaic, Jesus' language that he spoke. Those are feminine nouns. Spirit is really she, not he. Malkutha, kingdom, that we talk about all the time. Jesus is always talking about his kingdom, right? That's a feminine noun. It's actually queendom rather than kingdom, if you want to get really technical about it. You know, the Jews weren't upset. They weren't worried or freaked out about these things. They assigned the gender to their words as they occurred to them, as they appeared to them. This, this idea of feminine qualities to God was something that was written into everything that they were doing, pointing us toward an experience a relationship that we could have versus just an intellectual knowledge or some sort of accomplishment that we have as we learn about our God. You all know that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? Someone has once said that uh, knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. Not bad, huh? We understand that knowledge is accomplished. Knowledge is acquired. We can take pride in our knowledge that we have worked hard to gain. But wisdom is the application of that knowledge in the experience of life. Someone else said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. (laughs) You have to experience that to know that it doesn't work, right? This is what knowledge is. Knowledge is in the experience I'm sorry, wisdom is in the experience. Knowledge is accomplished. It's male or masculine. Wisdom is experienced. The the Jews, the Hebrews, always saw it as female, this deeper knowing. Finally, someone said, knowledge is having a lot to say, and wisdom is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Take a look at Hosea 11, starting in verse 1. The Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him 
and called him out of Egypt as my son. Okay, so here's Hosea speaking the Lord for the Lord, and the Lord anthropomorphized, now we're going to see, as a loving mother, right? And this is often happening in Jewish writing. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them by my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. Now, I notice most of you are reading off of the uh, screen there, which is probably the NASB. And what I read to you was just out of the Good News Bible because it captures what's going on. If you notice in that second sentence, the uh, pronouns change. They go to third person plural, right? It probably says that the more they called to them. Okay, that's referring to the prophets. And it sounds really strange in, in English writing to switch from first person singular to third person plural like that. But this was common in Jewish writing. It was an idiomatic way that they spoke. The prophet here is switching his perspective. But I like the way that the Good News Bible puts it all back together again in a single stream for us English speakers. Because whether it's the prophet speaking or God speaking to the Jews, it was the same. The prophet spoke for God and the people weren't listening to him. You probably had Ephraim in that last one. I was the one who taught Ephraim instead of Israel. Ephraim was one of the tribes of the northern ten that was considered sort of the umbrella for all, shorthand. So if you said Ephraim, you meant the northern kingdom. If you said Judah, you meant the southern kingdom. And so what what, what the prophet here is talking about is the way the Good News Bible is trying to put it. God is talking about the nation of Israel as if it were her beloved child this beloved son that she gathers and holds and teaches to walk and holds next to her cheek. It's a beautiful image and it's common for the Jews to anthropomorphize God as a woman. You may have heard of the name of God, El Shaddai. Have you heard that before? Sometimes it's, it's translated as, as mighty king or mighty conqueror. You know what it actually means? <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for this with my wife. It means mighty breast. Shad is the word in Hebrew for breast. El Shaddai means the one who provides, the one who suckles, the one whose, whose milk is flowing and giving life. The Jews saw this. They understood this. Not either or, but both and. Both and. Father and mother. This image of God, the national provider, Ah, just, it's just amazing. How can God be both? How can God be both father and mother? How does this work? You know, it's difficult for us, but let me ask you this. Is the world round or flat? We know the world is round, right? For the last 400 years, we've known the world is round. But we experience it as flat. The world is round in fact, but the world is flat in our experience every single day. We experience the world as flat. We order our lives around the fact that we're on flat ground, don't we? Our experience is that it's flat. The knowledge tells us that it's round. God is the same way. God is the strong house. God is the Father, in fact. But we experience God day to day as compassionate love, as mercy, 
as pure relationship, as mother, or we don't experience him at all. When we experience God, he's flat, he's compassion, he's mercy, he's mother. We don't experience him any other way except in our minds, except conceptually, just like the globe of the earth is just conceptual to us. It doesn't enter into our daily life, unless we go into orbit, of course, that's a different case, but here and now in this, this is one way we can see how God is both at the same time. Jesus had an intimate relationship with his father. He called him Abba. Abba in Aramaic is what the children use. It's a familiar term for their daddies. We would say daddy. He called him Abba. That was revolutionary for him to have that kind of relationship, to call the king of the universe his Abba. But think about this. Jesus experienced his Abba first as Ima, mommy, what the children would say, in his own mother, in Mary. And as he moved out and became more and more intimate with Ab, the king, he realized he was Abba, daddy, at the same time. He experienced the mercy and compassion. He experienced firsthand how deep the love went so that he could call him by that intimate name and realize who he really was. He could see both sides of Father God. And that's what he did in his life. Think about everything that he did, all of his relationships. He always led with mother. He led with relationship. He led with mercy and compassion and acceptance first. He only brought the teaching in later. Last week we talked about three, what would you call them, encounters that he had right across the barrier between Mark 1 and Mark 2. It was with the leper who came to him and asked for healing. It was with a paralytic who was lowered down through a hole in the ceiling in his house. And then it was the calling of Levi. And in each one of those, remember what happened? The leper says, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, yes, I'm willing. He touched him before he healed him. He, he broke a huge ritual boundary. If you touched a leper, that made you unclean as well. You had to now go through the ritual cleansing, go back to the temple. He breaks that boundary. He leads with the touch. He leads with the willingness to be connected, even to someone who knows that they're unclean, knows that they stand outside of all community, all trade, all warmth, everything that community has to offer. He touches them first. When the the paralyzed man is lowered down through the hole in the roof, the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, he calls him son. This man was paralyzed in Jewish thought. That's because he or his family or somebody did something wrong for this to befall him. And the proof of him being back in God's good graces was to be healed. Jesus calls him son and says your sins are forgiven before he heals him. He's breaking a theological boundary there. And when he calls Levi out of the tax booth, you know, Levi was the scum of the earth to the Jews. He was a Roman collaborator. He was a chiseler. He was a cheater. He was someone who also had his feet on their neck, the national neck of the people. And Jesus says, come follow me. And then he dines with him that night in his house with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He breaks social boundaries as well. He always leads with mother. Do you see that? And then he says... Now go and sin no more. 
You see what relationship looks like? Stop practicing that which destroys this kind of connection, this kind of acceptance, this kind of love. This is Jesus, always leading with mother. And he realizes that there is no learning until relationship is first established. And if you think about it, we can only be healthy and balanced in our lives if we operate in the same way. If we lead with mother, if we lead with relationship and acceptance, it doesn't work the other way around. We don't establish just the justice and the firm rule of a standard of law and have any kind of relationship based on that. Not in the macro and not in the micro, not in our one-on-one relationships. Yes, in the macro we establish justice, but in our relationships we lead with mother or we don't have a relationship at all. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The father pushes the standards. The mother balances with pure acceptance. You know about the face only a mother can love. That's the acceptance that we're talking about here. Absolute acceptance. Jesus was accepting those who nobody else would accept. He was touching those who no one else would touch. He was drawing into his inner circle those who were anathema socially. He's taking everything that the Jews thought and turned it upside down, and he's doing the same thing to us if we're honest about it. We're not so evolved that we don't have these same kind of standards in place. We need to take them and turn them absolutely upside down. Think about anyone that you really like. Think about it. Who's the person you really like? Got someone in mind? Is that a friend? Is that a coworker? How about a grandchild? Hopefully it's a husband or wife, but you know, that's a little tougher, isn't it? Except for me. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you want someone to feel that way about you? That person that you really like, don't you just light up when you see them? Don't you want to always invite that person to a party that you're throwing? Isn't anything that you do better when that person is there because they make you laugh, because you feel so comfortable with them, you feel safe with them, you've established that kind of rapport? Don't you want someone to feel that way about you? And ultimately, boy, don't you want God to feel that way about you. That he's always glad to see you. That he can't wait till you come home. That he's planning things around your schedule because he just likes you. Not just loves you, but likes you. And I know that for some of us, we didn't have those kind of relationships with our mother because the mother is the one who establishes, like Marion said earlier, it's the first heartbeat that you hear. It is the first face that you see if everything is going well. And to have that established is a beautiful thing because it's a memory of the mother's love that can balance a really frightening life. And if we don't get that at the beginning, and I know some of you probably haven't, life is really scary and it's hard to balance without that. This is why we stress the contemplative life. The contemplative life may be the first time that some of us have ever experienced the kind of love that mom was supposed to give us if she didn't. 
or it reinforces the love that mom did give us if she did. If everything about our relationship with God is only in our heads, right? Just intellectual, objective knowledge about, then guess what? God is always father to us and a distant father at that because it's only what we can conceptualize. What the contemplative life is designed to do is to help us to step away from all of those thoughts and just get down into our moments, to live our moments where we will experience the presence of God. In other words, we will finally start to experience Mother God. Father God lives in our head. Mother God lives in all of the moments. That's where we experience, and that's the only place that we're going to experience God as Mother, which brings Father right down into our laps. Now we can say with Jesus, Abba, Daddy, I get you. I can be this intimate with you because I've experienced your compassion, your mercy, your feminine qualities as well. Does Jesus give us a picture for this? Does he give us any way to understand what this looks like? Absolutely he does. Over and over and over with his life, with his words. But there is one story that head and shoulders above shows us exactly what it looks like, as one scholar said, when dad acts like mom. Right? It's called the prodigal son. But when you look at what the word prodigal means, it means wasteful extravagance. It just means just blowing everything all at once. That's what prodigal has to do with. So really, it's not the prodigal son. It's the prodigal father is really what's going on in this story. And you probably know the story, and it's there in your bulletins if you want to take a look, and Brandon's probably putting it up. But just off the top of my head, a man has two sons, right? The younger son comes to the father and says, you know what, I'm tired of hanging around here. Just give me all the inheritance that is due me, and I'm out. Now, at that moment, Father God had every right to have that son stoned. Did you get that? He could stone. That was a capital offense to dishonor your father and mother. It was a capital offense to hurt the family in any way. This son was saying, give me what is due me. And in, in that culture, the sons always stayed with the father's house. It was the daughters that moved with their husbands. That money was supposed to stay with the family and sustain it for generations. And he's taking it out. And the father says, okay. And he divides the property and he lets him go. No self-respecting patriarch would do that. And then the boy goes off into the distant land and he blows it all in all kinds of loose living and finds himself finally out of money, out of friends, out of everything, out of luck. And he is actually now in the pigsty eating the husks or trying to that the pigs are being fed. And for a Jew, that is the lowest you can go. The pig was the ultimate unclean animal and he is living with those unclean animals and finally he has an apostrophe and he says, oh, you know what? Even the hired hands are living better than this. They got food to eat, they got a warm bed and they got a roof over their heads. I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father that I don't deserve to be your son anymore because of what I've done, but just hire me in as one of your hands so that I can live. And so he sets off and he's journeying and you can just imagine him Right, rehearsing the speech over and over and over as he goes, as he's walking, what he's going to say, and sweating bullets the whole time because he doesn't know what his father's reaction is going to be. Have you all been there before? 
You've blown a relationship so badly and you want the forgiveness like life itself and you're trying to come back but you just don't know what the reaction is going to be. And the scene shifts to the father, the prodigal father, the spendthrift, wastefully extravagant father and as soon as he sees, sees his son's head crest over the rise of the road, he bolts out. You can imagine some little strangled cry coming out of his throat. And he bolts out of the house and he lifts up his robe so that he can run. And he's sprinting for his son. Hebrew patriarchs didn't run. That was undignified. Hebrew patriarchs didn't show skin in public ever. That was abomination. And he's doing both as he sprints for this son who has to be wondering what in the heck is coming now. And when he gets to his son, he basically drapes himself over his son. And the scripture says he kissed him, but that doesn't do it justice. Because the way the verb is conjugated there, what it means is he couldn't stop kissing him. Here's a boy who came out of a pigsty. Here's a boy that still has the dried excrement all over himself. Here's a boy who hasn't showered and has been walking for days, weeks, who knows how far. And his father drapes himself around him in his best clothes and can't stop kissing him. And when the boy finally gets just a breath, he starts in with his speech, Father, I have sinned against God and against you, and the father isn't even listening. He's already barking orders to the servants and says, Kill the fatted calf, start the party. My son was dead, and now he's alive. We don't even know that the son really was remorseful about what he'd done. Enlightened self-interest, he wanted a place to live. But we don't even know. Think about that for just a second. When dad acts like mom, when the standards that are set both in our family, between us as individuals, in our society at large, mean nothing in the face of the beloved right in front of you, right here, right now. You're starting to understand. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. You are loved like that. God doesn't just love you because he has to, because he created you, because that's his nature. He likes you. The party doesn't start until you get home. He's been waiting for you this whole time so that he can have that connection again that he's been yearning for since the day you walked out of the house. This is who our God is. We won't know how much God likes us until we just let go of everything we think we know and allow Mother God to play through our lives. That breath of spirit, when she moves through our lives, then we'll get the first inkling of what this is all about. And Jesus will be smiling like the Cheshire cat because he knows what it is we're experiencing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our mothers. Thank you for that first heartbeat that we hear. Thank you for the model that our mothers give us for the kind of love that you really have for us. And for those of us who haven't experienced that kind of love, who can't even maybe imagine what it would be like to be loved this way, help them, help all of us 
to let go of preconceived notions, to let go of what we think we know, and just be here now. Make choices based on a love like that and see what happens in our lives. That's what we need, Father. We need you. We need you as both father and mother showing us the relationship that we really have. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for this morning and everything that has happened. Never let us forget we can only love at all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.